Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I, good morning. I, I, I always greet people, you know, at the beginning. Chuck is a faithful responder. Uh, and yet he was helping to teach the kids in Sunday school. So I greeted everybody in first service and I said, good morning. Five seconds, nobody said anything. Uh, so, you know, this, I feel much greater. Yeah, Caleb felt the awkward silence because I was going to wait. Uh, and he, he greeted me. So welcome. Uh, if you're new to Christ Bible Church or joining us online, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the great privilege of uh, taking us through the second half of Luke chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and so you can uh, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at uh, Mary's song, The Magnificent, uh, and also Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, but before we get there, I kind of want to just set the tone. Christmas is a time of hope, is it not? We're hopeful, we love it. Even in secular society, uh, it's a time of year that's full of hope that something special might just happen. Need proof? Turn on Hallmark. Right? What do you see on Hallmark? You watch movies that promise an unlimited supply of princes for every girl that runs a bakery, is a mid-level marketing manager, or a chef somewhere. Uh, they, they have one of three positions, always, I feel like. Uh, and it's a movie, though, time and time again, one plot, different people, actually same people, different characters they're playing, uh, that portray this hope. I watch a lot of Hallmark movies. I'm not afraid to admit that I like watching Hallmark movies or shows like Gilmore Girls. Uh, you know, it's not above me to, to say that. Uh, but there's other movies. A personal family favorite, Christmas Vacation, Elf. What's in these, what's in these uh, uh, great comedy Christmas movies? It's a time about bringing families together, about reunion, about hope that maybe, just maybe, this year will be the year that families are reunited. Even uh, the all-time Christmas movie, Home Alone, right? Everybody loves Home Alone. How does Home Alone end? With the reunion of not just the McAllister family, but also old man Marley, who finally is reunited with his family after all these years of separation. Again, we see time after time again, even in secular displays of Christmas, that there's this underlying hope that this year perhaps will be the year that everything changes forever. Why is this? Well, simply because Christmas is a time of hope. Christmas, by definition, is a time of hope, and we'll see that this morning. The birth of Christ which is referred to as the incarnation oftentimes. And so songs like Hark the Herald Angels, we say a word called incarnation, simply means God in the flesh coming down to dwell with us, is a time when the world experiences a change that leaves it altered forever. And this life-altering event brings in hope and has this undeniable sense that even secular celebrations can't help but to recognize. Last week, we looked at the first half of, of Luke 1, with visits from the angel to Zechariah and to Mary. And so we'll pick up here at verse 40. And what we see is happening in Luke chapter 1. Mary has taken off to see her cousin in the hill country. She is perhaps at a sprint, but it, there's an urgency to her pace. She's going to see her cousin. Who is this cousin? We quickly see in Luke 1, this is none other than the old, barren, formerly barren woman, Elizabeth. Uh, it's her cousin of who knows how many more years, her elder. And so Mary goes to visit the wife of the prophet who now has a child, and she's rushing to bring the news of what the angels have just brought to her. Mary 
running through the countryside, arrives. She knocks on the door, hands on hips, probably panting, you know, tired. If she's like me, she took a lot of breaks on the way uh, to get there. Uh, But she is exhausted from this trip. And as she flings open the door and goes to greet her old aunt and uncle, before she can say a word, what does Luke tell us? The baby leaps inside of Elizabeth. It says it's filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see this wonderful response in verse 43 by Elizabeth. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth recognizes as her cousin enters the room that the baby that is inside of her young cousin Mary is God. It's really happening. Hope is here. The Messiah has finally come. John Piper tells this of the story. God is about to change the course of all human history. The most important three decades of all time are about to begin. And where is God? Occupying himself with two obscure, humble women, one old and barren, one young and virginal. Mary is so moved by this vision of God, the lover of the lowly, that she breaks out in a song, a song that has become known as the Magnificent. And so let's read this song today, uh, Luke 1, 46 to 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the song of Mary, for all that she's recognizing that is beginning to unfold as the incarnation, you coming down uh, in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is, is beginning. Lord, we can't help but also have a sense of hope and awe at what you are doing. And we pray that our response to seeing all of this unfolding, to being reminded of what you have done when you took on flesh, Lord, that we would be filled with joy and awe. That as the first line of her song says, we would magnify the Lord and rejoice in the Savior. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our minds and in our hearts to draw our affections away from the things of this world, the pursuit of possessions or prestige, and instead, Lord, that our affections would be found in you, that our hope and security would not be on the worldly things, but on our position with you. And so we ask that you would do that in our minds and in our hearts, that we might be able to be a people who magnify you in our soul. Amen. There's much we could talk about in Mary's song and Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, But this morning, I want to highlight just two things uh, that I see as as overwhelming points that, that speak from this text. The first is this. 
The birth of Christ reminds us that God lifts up the humble but crushes the proud. The birth of Christ reminds us that God lifts the humble but crushes the proud. And secondly, the birth of Christ reminds us of God's unfailing commitment to fulfilling his promises. God will not only remember his promises, he will keep them. In both of these things, we see why Christmas is a time of hope. And so let's look at that first point, the birth of Christ reminding us that God lifts up the humble and crushes the proud. Over and over, we see this in the Magnificent, in Mary's song. The birth and then life of Christ then proceeds through all of the Gospels to prove that the powerful of the world are powerless in the face of God. We're reminded throughout Scripture, but specifically here, that it's not the powerful and the well-to-do that God often uses to bring about His good plans and purposes in the world. He often raises up those who are unsuspecting to the world to accomplish His plans. Why is that good news to us? Why should it encourage us? Because we should be reminded that whatever we don't have in life, we have Christ. Just look at Mary's song. The rich, what does he say? He leaves them empty. The proud, what will he do? He will scatter them. The rulers, he will remove them from their throne. But contrary to that, the humble, what will he do? He has exalted them. The hungry, he has filled Mary, an insignificant young woman, and as Paul pointed out last week, from an equally insignificant town, will be called blessed for all generations. Why? Because she's a great person? Because she's done great things? No, because God has done great things through her. She will go down in history as perhaps the most significant woman of all time because God has used the insignificant and the humble to bring about his good plans. The weak find strength in Christ. The insignificant find themselves as heirs to God. And what greater hope can we have than that great truth? This is exemplified great in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a great uh, chapter. It's a messianic psalm looking towards Christ. But it looks at the futility of the people and the enemies of God. So how does it open Psalm 2, 1 through 4? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But the psalmist says in verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. This is the response to the enemies of God. They can plan all they want. They can take counsel together. They can set themselves collectively against God. What is God's response? He scoffs at them. He laughs. He says, oh, you little, little people, right? How silly do you think you are? Have you guys ever tried to do something futile? That no matter how much you work or how hard you try, you never get anywhere? For me, this was trying to dunk a basketball. When I was 14 years old, my dream, dunk a basketball, amongst other dreams, like getting to the NBA. But first, you had to dunk a basketball. Right? What was I going to do? Be inspired. I had all my heroes. If you were around in the 90s and you're a fan of basketball or great movies like Space Jam, you'll remember that there's this guy named Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues was five foot three, and he could dunk a basketball. And I was like, if that guy can do it, I can do it. And I'm going to work hard at it. 
And so what did I do? I jumped up and down on boxes and in the gym at, the, at Sunrise Mountain, working and working, trying to elevate my vertical so I could finally dunk a basketball. After well over a year of all of this work, how hard have I tried? Very hard. How much work have I done? Hours upon hours. Could I dunk a basketball? Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. It was then I quickly realized that some of these dreams and goals I had set for myself were not going to happen. They were futile. To stand against God is a similar exercise in futility. To oppose what God is going to do will never work out for his enemies. This is what the psalmist is proclaiming and what Mary sees as being proven in the birth of Jesus. The nations, they might rebel against God. They might set themselves against him. But Mary now sees that God has brought his begotten son into the world and the efforts of the enemies of God will be proven resoundingly fruitless. They will be futile. They will accomplish absolutely nothing. And so the Magnificat serves as a warning for us to not trust in the things of this world but in God. No doubt the Theophilus, who is the uh, person who's receiving uh, this first text in Luke, if you go to the beginning, uh, has a warning to himself here. He possessed power. He possessed possessions. He even might be tempted to have pride due to his high standing in society. And as he's reading even the opening verses of this manuscript given to him by Luke, he is reminded and the tone is set that those who find their strength apart from God will be proven fruitless. And even this man of great power who is commissioning Luke to do great things should find his strength and hope not in his possessions, not in his standing, but in God. This is our call today. We should be reminded that the proud are crushed, but the humble are exalted through Christ. One of the evidences that we have in our lives of deep faith is dependence on God. You want to know if you have a deep, real faith? Are you really dependent on Him? And this is a hard thing in our society. Most of us in here have savings accounts. We've listened to people like Dave Ramsey and practice good financial business. So we know we have a, an emergency fund when things go awry. And these things are good. But if we're not careful, we're tempted in our society to begin to trust in our own efforts, our own wisdom, our own ability to get promotions, our efforts to grow in our occupations. And we don't trust in God. We begin to trust in ourselves. This will lead us away from God. This will lead us into a dependence on ourselves. A deep faith is the result of a great dependence on God. What does Mary say in the middle of her song? His mercy is, are, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Knowing that God at any moment can do anything he wants, they are utterly dependent on him. That is our reminder this morning. And that leads right into the next point. The birth of Christ reminds us of God's unfailing commitment to fulfill his promises. For the Jewish people of the day when Mary is having this child, Jesus, uh, he is arriving in a time when God has been silent for centuries. Hundreds of years have passed with no word of God coming to the people. They have no prophet who's speaking to the people on behalf of God, no word 
or oracle from God, God has been silent for hundreds of years. You can see this even in the book of Maccabees. The book of Maccabees is a historical account. It's not scripture. It's a historical account of the time of the Maccabees. And it possesses all of these questions that the people are asking because God is silent. What should we do? Well, we'll just have to set this stuff aside before a prophet of God, a man of God, can come and speak to us and tell us what to do with them. God has been silent. They've been under occupation for centuries, and the people of Israel are longing for the days of David again. When they have freedom, when they have the reign and the promises of God that they feel like they so deserve, the day is dark and the silence of God is deafening. Had he forgotten them? Had he uh, failed to fulfill his promises? Or perhaps have they sinned so much against him that he's revoked the promises that he has given? Would his promises then to Abraham and David be left unfilled? The night is dark, and for many, hope has probably been lost as years had passed into decades on into centuries of foreign rule and silence from their God. But into this darkness springs the light of hope in Luke chapter 1. What is happening with these two young women? As Mary is bursting forth in song, God has not forgotten his promises, and he will fulfill them. And so in the birth of Christ, we see that both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants are fulfilled. Abraham indeed would be a blessing to all the nations. David indeed would have a descendant on the throne forever. It may have seemed like God had abandoned him, but in this moment in history, in Luke chapter 1, all of the promises that these people have felt might not be kept are fulfilled. Here in Luke 1, we see that God keeps promises. Mary finishes her song remembering this and recognizing this. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. To Mary, this birth, this child that she had in her womb was a clear sign of the faithfulness of God to the promises he had made. This is exemplified even more in the prophecy towards the end of the chapter of Zechariah. And so let's read, starting at verse 68 together, if you have your Bibles, otherwise I will read it out loud here. Through verse 75. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David, as he had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, and to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days." What is Zacharias seeing as he's bursting out in the spontaneous prophecy? Salvation for the people of God has come because God has remembered his promises. What he had spoken through the mouths of the prophets of old, he has brought to pass because of his great mercy. He has kept his covenant with his people. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 136. The beginning of it, uh, verse 1, simply says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, 
and his steadfast love endures forever. Many of you have heard this before, but what is this? Steadfast love is actually the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant faithfulness. And so the verse literally could be translated, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his faithfulness to his covenants endures forever. God is faithful to what he has promised despite the faithfulness he receives in return. God is going to bring about his promises because he has promised them to be. Under no other condition is necessary. The birth of Jesus is not just a reminder that God knows his promises and keeps his promises, but is indeed the very way at which God fulfills his promises. It's a wonderful reminder for us this morning. And so the natural question as we begin to wind down this morning is simply, what are God's promises to us then? If we're called to hope, if Christmas is a time of hope, what then are the promises of God? And there's many throughout Scripture. But as I sat and prayed and thought this week, here's some of the promises of Scripture that popped out to me. God promises salvation for all who believe. God promises to finish the work in us that he started. God promises to supply for us our needs. The God, God promises the gospel will go out. God promises rest. God promises an eternal inheritance. And in fact, the greatest promise as I was re reflecting this week that brought me hope, God promises he will return. What a wonderful truth. There's so many more promises, but even in just these ones, we should be overwhelmed with hope. We are called to hope at Christmas because we have a God who is faithful. He has promised these things to us who believe in him, and they will happen indeed. And so despite what we face in life, we should think this year is the year. God has done something different. He has worked his goodness in me. He will bring to completion whatever he has started in our lives. And so the beauty of Christmas is just like all those Hallmark movies promise, there is indeed a prince waiting for each and every one of us. He's the prince of peace. He's God Emmanuel. Those who depend on him find strength and hope in his promises, knowing that he is unfailing and unchanging, dependable to the very, very end. The baby promise to Mary is a promise of hope. And the proper response of us then is spontaneous praise. How great are you, God? Singing, dancing, celebration. Why do we do that on Christmas? Because that's what you do when you see such a great thing happen. You burst out in praise. And so the birth of Jesus reminds us that our lives should be marked by joy. For we have a God who has never forgotten his promises and has given us his very son. Three application points for us as we finish this morning. First, do you find your sense of pride in your accomplishments or in your relationship with God? What brings you satisfaction in life? Is it the things that you have done or is it what God has done in you? Number two, do you struggle to believe in the promises of God? Is your life marked by anxiety about what could happen or is it marked by assurance of what will happen, which God wins? That's what will happen. And finally, number three, what can you do to share the hope of Christmas? God 
incarnate, coming into the flesh amongst his creation with somebody this week? Who is it in your life that you need to be like Mary, rushing out in the countryside to bring them the good news and hope of Jesus Christ? Is there somebody in your life that you need to simply invite to come to Christmas Eve services on Friday with you, that they might celebrate and hear about the birth of the Savior? What is God calling you to do, and who is he calling you to share with? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are faithful. You are unchanging in your character, and your promises stand. Father, the, the psalmist words in, in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We pray that that would be the attitude of our hearts and minds, that no matter what we face, we look at you and we give thanks because you are the enduring God. Father, might our life and mind and actions this week magnify you. Might we be overcome by an overwhelming sense of joy in the goodness of Jesus, of the fact that we can have a personal relationship with him, that the prince who sits on the throne invites us to be a part of his family. And so, Father, we ask that if we have been overcome by anxiety, by the pursuit of positions and power or a dependence on ourselves rather than you, that this week, Lord, you would draw us as humbly to your feet, that we might sit before you and thank you and glorify you. Father, we thank you for all that you do, for giving us Jesus, for giving us the song of Mary and the prophecy of Zechariah, that we might also respond to you with spontaneous and resounding joy. Father, thank you for the incarnation, for the birth of Christ, and for all that we have to celebrate for each and every day. Amen.